Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wag, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. We are now in episode 74. That's right. This episode you're listening to right now is 74, and we're going to discuss power stations. That is solar generators, things that are neither solar nor generators, but are still very, very popular. We're also going to talk about a new kind of butane can that's safer, peel and stick vinyl flooring, and a visit to a volcano. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me once again. It has been so long since we have spoken, oh, I would say at least a week, as it has been every week for the past year or so. Housekeeping notes, I have added a couple videos to the YouTube channel about my visits to Aurora, Kentucky, and a little bit of a vlog. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, head over to the YouTube channel. It is built to go, a YouTube channel. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm so creative in that way. And... I do have stickers. If anybody would like a Hook Waka Bang sticker, I will send an explanation along with it. This is a sticker that is basically a Euro decal with a question mark, a greater than symbol, and an exclamation point. It has deep, deep meaning for many people. If you would like one of these, I will send it to you free of charge, so long as you're in the United States, because that's really the only place I can send these free of charge. Send me your mailing address to jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. I am not harvesting your addresses. I don't keep them. I just need the address to send you the sticker. That's all there is to it. So if you'd like one, send me a note and let me know. Okay, let's get into this now. Power stations. If you've been listening, you know that I recently bought a couple of power stations. I bought uh, an Awanfi and a Wakaim or Wakami. I don't know how to pronounce these things. And I've been playing with them, and I have not done a full review yet because, honestly, I haven't had a chance to sit down and, like, set these things up at the bench. And I'm sorry about that. But I have used them a bit. My van is set up in such a way that all the power in the back goes to one cigarette lighter plug. So it's very easy for me to unplug from the system I built and then plug into one of these power stations. And that's what I've been doing. And I can report that they work fine. I can literally just unplug and plug in and everything in the back of my van works as if it were using the batteries I have in there. So it is a solution. That said, why are they so controversial? Why do people get angry? when you say that you want to use a Jackery or a Goal Zero or whatever in the back of your van. And then this is getting to be more and more true for so many different van life things is that people have opinions on things and they think that's the right way. You must do it that way. And it's not true. Now, there's many different ways to do many different things in van life. And there are reasons to use one of these power stations. First, I have to give you my little rant, and that is that you will see these referred to as solar generators. Let it be known that they are neither solar nor generators. You can recharge them with solar, but they typically don't come with panels unless you buy a package. And as for them being generators... They're not generating energy, they're storing it and giving it back to you because they're batteries. The reason the term solar generator came around is because people see them as replacements for gasoline generators. So you will use them in the places that you used to use your gasoline generator, and since you can charge them with solar, the marketing term solar generator came out. Don't let that confuse you. They're just batteries with built-in inverters and plugs and things like that. That's it. They're all-in-one electrical systems for your van. That's the best way to think of them. Why would you want one of these things? Well, I can think of a lot of reasons, actually. First off is they're easy. 
you don't have to understand a whole lot. You can just buy one of these and instantly you have the ability to charge things with USB. You have 110 volt or 220 volts if you're overseas outlets. You have the inverters built into them. They have lights in them sometimes. You don't have to run any wires. It's just all there in one box. And that has advantages that I don't think the detractors consider. First off, it's compact. They are basically the smallest amount of space that you can possibly take up for all this stuff. So if you're in a smaller van, you save a lot of space over using, say, an MPPT controller and a couple of batteries and an inverter. All that stuff is actually going to take up more space than the power station. Also, they're safe, and I use my air quotes around that. They have different levels of safety. There are so many of these on the market now, and some of them aren't as good as others. But they are tested. They are safe in that someone has engineered this and made sure it was safe to some level of safety, which if you build it yourself and you're a newbie, well, you might miss something. I say put in a fuse. If you're ever in doubt, put in a fuse. That's one of the easiest ways to be safe. But you don't even have to worry about that if you get a power station. Another thing that folks overlook is that they're portable. Maybe you're somebody who does tent camping sometimes. Or maybe you've got a small van like I have, and you're going to go camping with three people. Well, all three of you aren't going to fit in your NV200, but you would fit in a big tent. So you could use your van as kind of like your kitchen and storage vehicle, and then your tent is the sleeping area. And you could just move your power station into the tent at night, and then you've got lights and radios, and you can watch TV or whatever the heck you want to do. That's pretty cool. And yeah, you could argue that you could do that with extension cords from your van if you had a built-in system, but eh, that's more wires. And one last thing that I'm going to recommend for the pros and the cons are coming, you just wait. You have one source of tech support for these. If you build your own system, and let's say you're going to spend some money, so you get your Battleborn battery, and you get your Renogy MPPT controller, and you got your solar panels from Rich Solar, and then you got your wires from Amazon, from some unknown company, and, and then something goes wrong, like you get an over-voltage warning, or something just isn't connecting, who do you call? Is it the batteries? Is it the MPPT controller? Is it the wires? Did a fuse blow? You have to know enough to be able to troubleshoot it on your own and find the problem. And with these power stations, you don't. You just have one source that you call. Hey, my power's not working. What do I do? And that can be very convenient for a lot of folks. Also, if you are doing a no-build, or you are doing a rental vehicle, or something like that, this is a no-brainer. You, you can move this thing in and out in seconds, and you don't have to do anything permanent, so they're great for that too. Now, cons. Why wouldn't you want to do this? The number one reason is that it's expensive. You are definitely going to pay more for the convenience of having one of these power stations. If you build your own system you will spend less money in most cases. These power stations are getting so low in price now that I'm not sure that's always true. But it is always true that you'll have a lot more flexibility if you build your own system. For example, let's take the Awanfi I'm using for example. It has a 500 watt inverter and it has a max output of 600 watts. So let's say I have something that surges at 750 but then settles down to 400. I couldn't use it with that Awan fee. 
But let's say that everything else is exactly what I want. Well, too bad. There's a reason it can't work. But if you're building out your system in separate components, you could use the same batteries and the same USB outlets and then just beef up the inverter. And you can't do that with the all-in-one units. You have to accept what the package comes with. And, oh, let's say, well, all right, I do need that 1,500-watt inverter, but I really don't need all that battery capacity. I mean, I'm not going to use it very much. Well, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You have to increase everything when you need one specification to go up. So, something to consider. Also, it's going to come with stuff that you might not need. Like, do you need another flashlight? Really? Do you really need another flashlight? And do you need an inverter at all? I know I talk about this a lot, but you may not even want an inverter. But if you buy one of these power stations, they all come with inverters. And there's another problem. Yes, you have one source of tech support, but if the thing breaks, you've lost everything. It's all gone. You've lost all your power. Whereas if you have a system you built yourself and some component goes bad, you can often wire around it or just replace that component. Again, that requires knowledge. Now, who should consider getting a power station? What what are these good for? Well, as I mentioned, a no-build situation. If you have, say, a minivan and you're just going to throw an inflatable mattress and some boxes in there in the weekend, power station is perfect for you. You don't have to do anything and you'll have power. Excellent. You are set. As I also mentioned, people who do tent camping as well, because then you can just move all your stuff into your tent from your van. That's kind of the same thing. They're also good for folks who are in a hurry. Like, let's say you're doing a van build and you're really eager to get on the road and you just haven't had the time to plan out an electrical system. That's fine. You can get one of these as a temporary thing to get you going, and then you can keep it as a backup. And that's what I really like about these things. I think they're great backup systems. It would not be a bad idea to have one of these in any build. If you, you know, it's a money thing. Is it, do you really want to spend a few hundred dollars on something as a backup? That's completely up to you. But if something bad happens to your electrical system, like you blow a fuse and you don't have a replacement, or your MPPT controller dies and you have no way to charge your batteries, whatever, having this as a backup would be great because it will at least get you through a day or two to get you into a place where you can fix your main system. I am a fan of power stations, and yet I understand that there are times when you want to use them and times that you're not. They are not good or bad. They are neutral. So you decide for yourself whether you want one or not. So don't let other people tell you that you definitely don't want something because they may not have the same circumstances. Tech Talk. As I have mentioned many times, I love my little butane stove. For me, for 20 bucks, these butane stoves are the simplest, easiest way to get a way to cook in your van. But people have safety concerns, and I learned something new that I wanted to share with you about butane stoves. First off, I always knew that there's a risk using butane. There's two basic risks. The first is that burning any gas like butane or propane or liquid natural gas or whatever you're burning can produce gases that will, well, you know, kill you. So you don't want to do these indoors, or if you do use them indoors, you want to do it with a lot of ventilation. I've talked about this a lot. And you always want to have a carbon monoxide monitor. Yes, we know all that. Okay. The other risk is that, well, sometimes they explode. But there are certain circumstances under which they explode. The number one reason that butane stoves explode 
is that people put pots that are too big onto the stove. The way the stove is designed, you could fit a five-gallon stock pot on it and it would work, quote-unquote, but you would seriously be risking blowing the thing up because the heat underneath the pot would get trapped and actually heat up the canister. And when the canister gets hot enough, it will rupture and release all that gas into your burner and then you have this big fireball and yeah you kind of don't want that so first thing don't use pots that are too big 10 inches is the rule don't use a pot that's bigger than 10 inches on one of these stoves but there's another thing and this is what i just learned there are two types well all right there's three types of butane canisters in the world that i have encountered one is the kind you find at home depot that are for like butane torches and stuff forget about those they don't work in these stoves the canister for these stoves has to have a little notch in the collar in order to even work in these stoves so that's the first thing the other is they have new types of canisters now that have a blue ring it's like a rubbery ring but it's transparent around the valve around the cap and if you look closely, there are dots under this blue ring. And what those are, are safety release valves. You will see videos and hear people saying that these cans can explode. But what does explode mean? These cans can overheat and rupture. All the gas comes out at once. Now, if there is a source of ignition, as in you're using the stove at the time, yeah, you'll get a big fireball. But if there isn't, like let's say you leave it out in the sun which is a very bad idea, and it ruptures, it's just going to let all the gas out. That's it. If you, if you left it out on the sun, say in Death Valley in July, and left it out on the ground, it may rupture, and then you'd get this big cloud of vapor, and then it would dissipate, and that would be it. It's not good, but it's not as bad as people make it seem. It's not going to explode your van. It will explode your stove. The new blue ring ones won't even do that. What they will do when they overheat is release gas through these little holes, which is a much more controlled way. So the canister will not rupture. It will stay in one piece, but the gas will still come out. So yeah, you can still get your fireball, but it's going to be much smaller because the gas is going to come out in a much more controlled way. In short, it's safer to get the ones with the blue rings. So if you have a choice, get the ones with the blue rings. If you don't have a choice, the old ones are fine. Just make sure that they don't get overheated. And overheated is generally, the safe range is about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Your van can get hotter than that. If you left this on the windshield, or the dashboard under the windshield, yeah, that would be bad. But if they're in a container, a drawer, something like that, where they're not in any direct sun, they're almost always going to be fine. If you want to be as safe as possible, you can only use these outdoors. That's a good safety rule. And you can store them in a canister that is vented. You definitely want to do this if you're using a big propane can because that's a lot more power than one of these little butane cans. But you basically just put them somewhere in your van where there's a hole in the floor that if these things do vent that gas will go down the hole in the floor and it will be the safest possible situation. I think these things are pretty safe and if you use a little common sense, I don't think you're going to have a problem. But hey, why not be as safe as possible? Get the blue ring ones if you can. They do sell them on Amazon, but reports are that you really don't know what you're going to get until you get it. So I know that most of my cans do not have blue rings right now. I will look for them in the future. Tales 
from the road. A psychiatrist of mine many years ago introduced me to the concept of blinded by one's own light. Sometimes you kind of forget that your intent and motivations may not match the conditions in the real world. And this is a story about that. Many years ago, I was driving with some friends and an old car in front of me suddenly lurched a little bit and I noticed that the driver that I later found out was a he had experienced a flat tire. And me, being good Samaritan that I was, I immediately pulled over in front of his car to help him change his tire. I got out of my car, went back to his, and he rolled down the window and said, Move up! Move up! I was like, oh, okay, he must not like where we parked. Maybe it wasn't level? I don't know, it looked fine to me, but okay, whatever. So I moved up about 10 feet, got out of my car, went back, and he said, Move up! I'm like, mm, okay. All right, I don't know what the deal is, but whatever. So I moved up another 10 feet and went back and the guy looked at me and said, move up and then get out of my way so I can change my damn tire. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he just doesn't want any help. That's all. That was what move up meant. I don't understand why he just didn't say, hey, thanks for stopping, but I'm fine. I can change my own tire. No, he was mad. <laughs> He was probably more angry at the tire than me, but I was so intent on helping this guy that I didn't pick up on the fact that he didn't want or need any help, and I was literally in his way. So what does that mean? Does that mean you shouldn't stop and help people? No, it doesn't mean that. It means you should kind of try to figure out the situation as much as you can, and if you make a mistake like I did, eh, it's okay. I think it's probably better to err on the side of trying to help somebody than not trying to help somebody. I would be very curious to hear your thoughts on that, though. If you have a better idea on how I could have handled that situation, let me know, and I will consider it. Product review. I when I built my van, thought I was so clever because I found that for 50 bucks, I could completely do my floors in the van and I would have lots of leftovers for incidents. Like if I actually damaged the floor, I could replace a part and it would be perfect. And which I have done, by the way. My solution was peel and stick vinyl flooring. I mean, why not? I've got some peel and stick that was uh, a good color for the van. It was some tans and grays. It kind of looked like wood, but not really. And it took me maybe half an hour to put it all down. And honestly, it looked great. The seams were nice and tight, and it was easy to sweep, and I just thought it would be awesome. And then when I accidentally broke one because I didn't have enough support under the floor in one part, I was able to remove it and put in a replacement piece. I thought, this is a great solution. It's only 50 bucks. I can't wait to tell people about this. Well, I kind of never did tell people about this. And that's because now that I've had this in there for two years, I think it's a terrible solution. It's terrible. And the reason it's terrible is because vinyl changes sizes when the temperature changes. And my van has been anywhere from negative 20 Fahrenheit to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So a range of 140 degrees. And that vinyl has shrunk and expanded and shrunk and expanded and it has now cracked. And there are big gaps where those tight seams used to be. Basically the stuff moves and it is not good. 
So I don't recommend peel and stick vinyl flooring for your van unless it's in a very small area. Like if you wanted to do just your garage area or something like that, I think that would be fine. But for the whole floor, it's not that great of a solution. At least it's not as good as I thought it would be. I mean, it's not the worst thing ever, but I think a single piece of rollout vinyl would actually be a better solution. Although if you damage that, then you're kind of stuck. It's hard to replace just a little piece. So look at that. I did a bad product review. I know they're fairly unusual, but this one I really need to let you know. Yeah, do something better. A place to visit. All right, so this place to visit, well, it's a little far away. It's it's on another continent. Um, it's in Ecuador, and it is called El Crater, which is pronounced in Spanish El Crater, I think. El Crater is a restaurant and hotel near Quito, Ecuador, and it is... Well, it's on the side of a volcano. And and the top, it, it's basically built on the edge of a volcano. <laughs> So it's a little unusual, but it's but it's really it's really a fun spot, and I've been there twice, and I, I recommend it. If you're ever in Quito, take a tour that goes to El Crater for lunch, or just go up there on your own and stay at the hotel. It's a very strangely designed hotel. They call it Art Deco, but it's more like a brutalist, modernist kind of concrete structure in all this greenery yet whimsical at the same time. It, it, it's, it's a little hard to explain how it looks, but it's really nice. And the restaurant has these windows that overlook the crater. So you're literally sitting on the edge of the volcano. And when you look down in the crater, which is an active volcano, by the way, you see a farm. There's a farm in the crater. There are people farming at the bottom of the crater in an active volcano. Like inside the volcano, there's a road that goes around the inside of the volcano and then down to the farm. And they're pretty hardy folks. I mean, this thing literally could erupt at any time and they're living on it. And if they had to escape, they would have to go up this big, long, spiraling road to get to the top and get out of the crater. So that's kind of a fun thing to think about as you're munching on your ceviche and pisco sours. I love this place. I definitely recommend it. And it's not even terribly expensive. It's about an hour and a half from Quito's new airport. And it's only 20 minutes from the equator monument. So most people who go to Quito go to the equator to say, hey, I stood on the equator. Well, there's a whole story about that too, but I'll save that for another time. Uh, but it's only about 20 minutes from there. So it's in that area. So again, it's called Hotel El Crater. <laughs> it's pretty easy to find. I'll have a link in the show notes. But if you're ever in Ecuador, and I see no reason why you couldn't take your van here, just a bit of a drive, definitely check out El Crater. Resource recommendation. This is an oldie but a goodie, especially with summer coming up and gas prices going up, as they do every summer. But, you know, now with the hacked pipeline and stuff, who knows what this summer is going to bring us. But gas prices are definitely higher than they have been. It's Gas Buddy. Yes, you've probably heard of it. But if you haven't, Gas Buddy is actually a really nice way to find a gas station where you can save a few bucks. In my neighborhood, when I look up Gas Buddy, the difference between gas prices is as much as 90 cents a gallon. Now, if you were filling up a 20-gallon tank for 90 cents a gallon, I mean, that's real money. You're talking about 18 bucks at that point. So get the Gas Buddy app. 
it if you haven't used it in a few years, they've added all kinds of stuff. They have discount programs and all that. You can look into that if you want. But the only thing I'm recommending is that it shows you the gas prices. And if you're on the interstates, a lot of times it will show you that, hey, the gas at the interstate is, say, 3 bucks a gallon. But if you're willing to drive two miles into town, it's only two fifty. So you have to judge whether it's worth it or not. Don't fall into the trap that the cheapest price is always the best because your time has value too. For example, the Costco near me in Chicago has the cheapest gas all the time forever. I mean, it would make sense just to go to Costco all the time because, well, for me, it's two minutes away. I happen to live right near Costco. Except that there's always a 15 to 30 minute wait at the pumps because the line's so long. And how much is your time worth? And for me, where our two vehicles in our household are the NV200, which has a 12-gallon tank, and a Scion IQ, which has an 8-gallon tank, our potential for savings isn't very much because our tanks are so small. So don't wait in long lines to save a penny a gallon. It's just not worth it. But Gas Buddy will help inform you on that too. So I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's gasbuddy.com. They make apps for everything. And if you're trying to save money on gas, it is a great tool. The Aurora Project. So I did do Aurora, Texas. And this is one of those auroras that has a famous story. If you watch any of these quasi-science channels on uh, the internet or on cable, such as Discovery Channel or whatever, they will often run UFO stories, and many of them will mention Aurora, Texas. Because on April 17th, 1897, an airship was seen to be faltering in the sky, and then it suddenly lurched and crashed into Judge Proctor's windmill, destroying the windmill, a nearby water tank, and the craft itself. And when people approached the wreckage, they found the mutilated body of someone who was not of this earth. Not knowing what else to do, they apparently picked up all the wreckage and threw it into a well, and then gave the alien creature a Christian burial in the cemetery. Yes, or so goes the story. But if you visit Aurora today, now again... For those not familiar with my Aurora project, I'm visiting every place named Aurora in the United States, which I had already done. I did that in 2019. So I'm doing a little compare and contrast. And Aurora, Texas, compared to 2019, is actually booming. They, they've they completely embraced this. They're in the cemetery, there is a place that is supposedly the grave of the alien that you can visit there's a long history of the markers for the gravesite being stolen. What is there now is a big flat rock that you will find under a very particularly shaped tree. And the rock has coins and things on it that people leave for the alien, whose name is Ned. <laughs> Ned the alien. Why not? But if you get out on Route 114, which is kind of the main road to get to Aurora, it's a very small place. There is a big restaurant and outdoor music venue and bar, and they sell Martian margaritas, and there's a replica of the crashed spaceship and a windmill even. They're capitalizing on it. And I, I talked with the owner, and he said that their business has gone crazy, and it was because of the pandemic. The pandemic actually helped them. Because they're just outside DFW, they're about 37 minutes from the airport, and people used to drive into the city for stuff, but during the pandemic, people didn't want to, and they wanted to stay local, so they all went and got their Martian margaritas at this little roadside bar. So, yeah, so for some of these towns, the pandemic has actually been a good thing, and aliens, apparently, can also be a good thing, so... 
Yeah, I'll have the YouTube video up hopefully soon about Aurora, Texas, and you can see the, the things that I found there. But uh, like I said, every Aurora's got a story, and that's the story of Aurora, Texas. Or at least part of it. There's more. Q&A. Here's a question I've seen a few times. How do you, I get my van level? Hmm. Well, RVs have leveling systems in them often. Sometimes they're manual, where they're basically just a jack on each corner that you crank up until it's level. And in some cases, they're fancy hydraulic systems with levers that you control from the inside. And in the fanciest cases, you press a button and these jacks come down and automatically level the vehicle. All that stuff is kind of fancy for vans. I mean, I suppose you could find a way to use the jacks, or you could just bring your own jacks and do it that way. But what most people do is two things. First is they bring boards with them and basically drive up on the boards until the van is level. Now, how level does your van have to be? It doesn't have to be that level. It just has to be level enough for you to do the things you want to do in there. In the old days where we used three-way fridges, also called absorptive fridges, that fridge had to be completely level to work. With the 12-volt compressor fridges, it's not really an issue. What is the biggest issue is sleeping. Some, you know, you have to be on a level enough surface that you can actually sleep in your bed and not <laughs> roll to one side or downhill. And a simple way to fix that problem is to design your bed so that you can level the bed. My bed is just a piece of furniture. It is not attached to the van at all. And if I'm on an unlevel surface, I can actually prop up the legs so that the bed is level. Now, I am not parking on the side of mountains, but if you park on a city street, for example, you might find that the street has a swale and tilts towards the curb, and that might be just enough to make you uncomfortable in the bed. And that's where the bed solution works really well. You put a couple pieces of wood or, or tuna cans or whatever you have under the legs, and then your bed is level and you can sleep. One challenge, though, is cooking. If you're trying to fry eggs in an unlevel van, that can be tricky. So you can actually level your stove, too, just the way you level your bed. But, of course, you have to be a bit careful. So those are my thoughts on leveling. Bring some boards if you're worried about it. But, honestly, what I tend to do is just drive around until I find a level place to park. <laughs> That's how I handle it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode 74. I absolutely appreciate each and every one of you. And as a reminder, if you would like to hear me talk about something or you want to know my opinion on something as wrong as it might be, let me know. Just drop me a line and I will be happy to talk about just about any aspect of van life that you'd like. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. Until next time, remember the words of Chris Humphrey. The road is there. It will always be there. You just have to decide when to take it. <laughs>